Amen. Thank you. Well, that was Eugene Choi from the Community Church of Seattle, downtown campus. And now I want to invite, uh, introduce you to Ann Park. Ann is also a member of the uh, downtown campus uh, church, and uh, she is a senior at the University of Washington. So she is a Husky. Uh, she is uh, studying psychology, and she is going to be reading our scripture passage uh, for us in Korean. So what I'd like to do, unless you understand Korean, I'd, I invite you actually today to take your pew Bibles or your Bibles if you brought them, turn to page 840 and follow along as best you can. Um, and um, uh, this is Luke chapter 7, verses 36 to 50. Hanbarisini, 예수를 청한 바리새인이 그것을 보고 마음에 이르되 이 사람이 만일 선지자라면 자기를 만지는 여자가 누구며 어떠한 자곧 죄인인 줄을 알았으리라 하거늘 예수께서 대답하여 이르시되 시모나 내가 내게 이를 말이 있다 하시니 그가 이르되 선생님 말씀하소서 이르시되 빚주는 사람에게 빚진 자가 둘이 있어 하나는 오백 대나리온을 졌고 하나는 오십 대나리온을 졌는데 갚을 것이 없으므로 둘다 탕감하여 주었으니 둘 중에 누가 그를 더 사랑하겠느냐 시몬이 대답하여 이르되 내 생각에는 많이 탕감함을 받은 자니이다 이르시되 내 판단이 옳다 하시고 그 여자를 돌아보시며 시몬에게 이르시되 이 여자를 보느냐 내가 내 집에 들어올 땐 너는 내게 발 씻을 물도 주지 아니하였으되 이 여자는 눈물로 내 발을 적시고 그 머리털로 닦았으며 너는 내게 입맞추지 아니하였으되 그는 내가 들어올 때로부터 내 발에 입맞추기를 그치지 아니하였으며 너는 내 머리에 감람류도 붓지 아니하였으되 그는 향유를 내 발에 부었느니라 이러므로 내가 내게 말하노니 그의 많은 죄가 사하여졌도다 이는 그의 사랑함이 많음이라 사함을 받은 일이 적은 자는 적게 사랑하느니라 이에 여자에게 이르시되 내 죄사함을 받았느니라 하시니 함께 앉아있는 자들이 속으로 말하되 이가 누구이기에 죄도 사하는가 하더라 예수께서 여자에게 이르시되 내 믿음이 너를 구원하였으니 평안히 가라 하시니라 This is the word of the Lord Please join me in prayer Loving God, open our eyes to see you, open our ears to hear you, open your word to us, and set our hearts on fire for you. And now may the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be pleasing and acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Through Christ our Lord we pray, amen. Today's passage is from the Gospel of Luke. What do we know about Luke? Well, Luke is the affectionate form of the name Lucius or Lucian. 
he was an associate of the Apostle Paul. He wrote 27.5% of the New Testament, the Gospel of Luke and the Book of Acts. In Colossians, he's referred to as the beloved physician. And of all the Gospel writers, Luke has the most details in describing the crucifixion. The Roman centurion was one of his eyewitnesses. But here's something I just learned about Luke from a class I took at Regent College this past June. In the first century Roman Empire, many physicians were slaves or former slaves. They were considered servants of the ruling class. Some scholars believe that Luke himself was a former slave because Lucius was a common slave name. Now, if that's true, then it makes sense why this story of the sinful woman features prominently in his gospel. Now, Luke's gospel contains three stories of Jesus having a meal with Pharisees, including today's passage. The other two times don't end well. Jesus argues with the Pharisees and they're not put in a good light. But in today's passage, Jesus seems to have a better relationship with this Pharisee. I mean, for one thing, this is the only table story in Luke where the Pharisee is named. His name is Simon. Jesus is invited to dine at Simon's home and while reclining at the dinner table, a sinful woman brings an alabaster jar of ointment and anoints Jesus' feet with her tears and with the ointment. As a former slave, Luke would have been especially struck by the expense and extravagance of this act, for this was certainly the most valuable thing that this woman owned, a family heirloom that she poured out for Jesus. But Simon the Pharisee focuses on the woman's sins, not on her act. He sees a sinner, an interruption, a person without the right to be at the dinner table. So Jesus tells a parable about the extravagance of God's forgiveness. The story is about two debtors, one who owed 500 denarii, the other 50. The surprise is that both debts were canceled, even though the first man owes 10 times the debt of the second. Now, a denarius was the usual day's wage for a laborer, so 500 denarii is the equivalent of almost two years of wages. Jesus gives us a startling image of the extravagance of God's forgiveness. Now think of times when we're extravagant, when we pull out all the stops to celebrate because we're so happy. One such time is a wedding. Uh, my younger daughter, Alina, got engaged this summer to a wonderful man named Jack. And so our family and his family are planning a wedding for next June. And it's a joyful celebration. 
And both families are happily planning for this event. Weddings are extravagant for at least two reasons. First, it's not really necessary. You know, couples are just as married if they elope to Las Vegas or go down to City Hall as, if, as they are if they decide to hold a traditional wedding with all the bells and whistles. Reverend Mary Anderson offers a second reason why weddings are extravagant. Because they are celebrations of the day that don't necessarily ensure the future. Spend that much money on a car or a house and you'll have an investment that might pay off in the future. But we celebrate extravagantly anyway out of love and joy and gratitude, not out of practicality. That's what this story seems like, extravagantly odd. Luke makes the connection between this extravagantly odd action in Simon the Pharisee's house to something that's extravagantly odd about God. For righteous people like Simon and all others who grew up in Sunday school, they were taught that God saves those like the Pharisees who uphold God's laws. But Jesus says that the depth of one's gratitude is proportional to that person's need for forgiveness. And Simon can't dis disagree with the math here. Jesus reveals himself to be the one who has the authority to forgive sins and who shares God's generous intention to reconcile relationships. For a creditor to forgive a debt simply out of grace is indeed extravagant. For the same creditor to also forgive 10 times that debt makes us question whether it's actually doable. I mean, this is a bit over the top. Stephen Webb has an expression for these kinds of things. The language of sacred or blessed excess. He says, what would be a life without excess? Extravagant actions, extreme claims and visions, without, in a word, hyperbole. This is right up there with Jesus' statement. If you had the faith the size of a mustard seed, you could say to this mountain, go jump in the sea, and it would. This is right up there with Psalm 103, where it says, for as the heavens are high above the earth, so great is God's steadfast love toward those who fear him. As far as the east is to the west, so far he removes our transgressions from us. As far as the east is to the west. Can you picture that? This is right up there with Jesus' response in Matthew's gospel when Peter asked him, well, how many times should I forgive? Up to seven times? No, 70 times seven times. And then he, ten, he then tells a parable similar to the one in Luke's passage that we read today, but which contains an even more extreme hyperbole. There was a certain servant who became indebted to the king. How much? The equivalent of 150,000 years of salary. 
As Fred Craddock notes, now he has maxed out the card. <laughs> the Apostle John uses hyperbole in his postscript to his gospel in chapter 21. He writes, there are also many other things that Jesus did. If every one of them were written down, I suppose that the world could not contain the books that would be written. As Craddock noted, that's ridiculous. The world couldn't contain the books. Can you imagine that? You know, we're, we're going to Ireland on vacation and there are all these books we couldn't get in. I mean, we're going on a mission trip to Vietnam and, and there were all these books. Now, I don't want to give the impression that I don't like hyperbolic, exaggerated speech. In fact, I do. And the Bible is full of this kind of extraordinary language. Hills dancing, trees clapping their hands, the hem of God's robe filling the temple. As one of my seminary professors said, that would be like walking into this sanctuary and seeing a giant toe. I mean, it's big. I like that. Jesus used hyperbole. You strain a gnat and swallow a camel, he says. I mean, you can't beat that. It's easier for a camel to go through an eye of a needle than for a wealthy person to enter the kingdom of God. There's a story of a frontier preacher in Kentucky around the 19th century or so. Um, a new discipline had entered the schools and therefore into the pulpits. And J.B. Briney was opposed to it. It was called psychology. Now, Anne is a psychology major, so no offense here, but he just didn't like it. For some reason, he thought it was erroneous, should not be in the church. So he decided to explain to his congregation his view of what psychology was. He said, it's a blind man in a dark cellar at midnight without a light looking for a black cat. That's not there. Now, even if you disagreed with Briney, you have to admire his use of hyperbole. There was an evangelist that came to um, Craddock's church in Western Tennessee, and he decided to take on the impossible task of explaining how long eternity was. So he said, Imagine a granite mountain. Now imagine a dove that flies by this granite mountain once every thousand years and touches it with the tip of his wings. When that dove has successfully leveled that granite mountain down to the ground in eternity, that's before breakfast. And I have myself enjoyed using hyperbolic speech. Oh man, he threw that pitch a country mile. I'm so hungry, I could eat a horse. That pie is to die for, 
I, I use that one a lot. <laughs> I mean, it's good language, and, and that's why I want to defend it. I don't know about you, but I grew up enjoying tall tales. One of my favorites was the stories of Paul Bunyan. He was literally larger than life, a giant lumberjack who had legendary exploits with his friend, Babe the Blue Ox. And I remember the story of Paul Bunyan dragging his ax across the desert because it was so hot and he was so tired. And the huge ax cut a ragged ditch through the sand that can be seen to this day. We call it the Grand Canyon. And one of my favorite stories was the kitchen Paul Bunyan made to feed the many men who worked for him. Large enough where 200 cooks could work at the same time. The tables were six miles long, uh, and the blacksmith had to make a 10-acre griddle pan uh, for the cook to make hotcakes. And, and this is my favorite part. The cook would strap flat sides of bacon on the feet of the cookhouse boys, and they skated back and forth over the huge griddle until it was well greased. And then they thought it was great fun, and, and you know they would play tag and crack the whip. And the griddle was hot, and they sometimes fell, and they burned their trousers. Wow, I love those stories growing up. But you know, not everyone likes hyperbole. Now, I'm a big fan of scholarship, of loving God with all of our heart and soul and mind. And that's why I believe Christians should strive to be among the best scientists, the best doctors, the best whatever. But sometimes I feel that some biblical scholars, well, they make God too small. Sometimes there can be a tendency to use reductionist language in talking about God. As Fred Craddock describes it, it's careful thinking, squared at the corners, carefully folded, everything manageable, doable, possible, no stretching of the mind, no surplus of meaning, giving the impression that they walked all the way around God and took pictures. Their presentation of God is just not big enough. I mean, I'd rather have some size to faith, to be reminded of the incredible gift of grace from God. I mean, how can anybody worship without hyperbole? Oh, for a thousand tongues to sing. You get the size of that? Remember, we're talking about the God who created the entire universe. Let me remind you just how big the universe is, how immense the scale of everything everywhere all at once is. It's so big that we have to use the speed of light to measure distances. Now, light is the fastest thing that we know of in the universe. It travels at 186,282 miles per second. So at the speed of light, you could circumnavigate the Earth's equator seven and a half times in one second. Light travels from the Earth to the moon in one second. 
Sunlight takes eight minutes to reach our eyes. It would take 4.3 years of, for light to reach the nearest star from here. It would take light 200,000 years to cross our Milky Way galaxy. And it's estimated that there are roughly 200 billion galaxies in the observable universe. And God created it all. You can't talk about God without hyperbole. The Apostle Paul understood this. A lot of times he would stop himself because he, he just couldn't say anymore. I mean, he'd say, the peace, the peace, the, the, the peace that just passes all understanding. I mean, he just couldn't describe it fully. You know, he would say, I want you to know the length and depth and breadth and height and, and the love of God. And he just ran out of words. He's the writer of the New Testament who actually uses the word hyperbole. In 2 Corinthians, when he talks about his experience of being caught up to the third heaven, he couldn't even talk about it. But God gave him a thorn in the flesh to keep him from being too arrogant and lofty and superior because of the hyperbolic nature of his vision. He wrote the Corinthians asking them for money for the poor in Jerusalem. And he said, remember the surpassing hyperbolic grace of God in abundance you received. Now I know there is a danger to, in taking hyperboles literally. And we know about parabole, parables, but we need to be careful with the hyperbole, the hyperboles. I don't think that, that means we should eliminate their use. We just need to be careful that we don't take things literally when they're meant to be taken as hyperbole. At uh, Riverside Church in New York City, when Bill Coffin was the senior pastor there, one Sunday he was preaching on Romans 10. Whosoever will makes no distinction. The Lord has reached to all who call on him. For whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Whoever. Now that sounds like an exaggeration. Bill got carried away and he didn't know, but one of the men, one of the men who regularly ate the breakfast for the homeless that the church served every morning came to the worship service and listened to that sermon on whoever. At the close of the service, shocking everyone, including Bill. Here, this tired, unwashed, suffering human being went down to the front to speak with the minister, a penitent sinner in search of the grace and forgiveness of God. Well, Bill talked to him, and then he turned around to the congregation and said, whosoever will, gave this man a great big bear hug. And then he said to the man in front of everyone, if you were the only human being in the world, Christ still would have forgiven you and he would have died for you. After the service, Craddock saw Bill and he said, 
still, if I told you once, I told you a million times, who's the hyperbole? He refused. Let's pray. God, you are bigger than we can even imagine. And yet, you care for each and every one of us. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for your forgiveness. And thank you for your love. Through Christ our Lord, we pray. Amen.